Hello everyone, and welcome to Grognard's Yell at Cloud, the hobby show about aggressive positivity. positivity. Oh. I'm Lich King Destro, and with me is Jeremy the Ghost Bear, and today we also have a guest. Uh, a man who needs no introduction, but I'm doing one anyways. A man whose painting is so good it makes us angry. The good painter, elf man himself. <laughs> it's Martin Orlando! Oh, nice. Wait, are we boxing? Hello, or, and thank you for having me. Yeah, um, I hope you didn't peek your mic there. That's fine. <laughs> I can uh, I can fix it in post if I did. Nice. All right. Um, yeah, so um, a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to always um, uh, talk on podcasts about hobby and uh, do what I can to share my experience with others. Yeah, yeah. and today we have kind of a fun topic. We're going to be talking about steampunk and whether or not it is good and whether or not Jeremy is a heretic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we're also going to be talking a little bit about uh, general punk themes, which which kind of leads into, I think, what Martin has been working on recently. So uh, why don't we get right into hobby time? And Martin, you can go first and tell us what is on your desk. What have you been working on? Um, I have gotten back to uh, into 40k uh, for the first time in uh, like seven or eight years. Uh, the last game of 40k I played was like two or three weeks before Age of Sigmar like launched. Like we're talking even before points like 2015. Um, I uh, recently moved uh, to a new city and I discovered it's like you know what I really think I should try and get back into 40k. And uh, so I've been working um, on some Dark Angels Space Marines for uh entry i would say into contests next summer but also for casual like non-crusade or maybe some crusade narrative play sure uh, so i've been working on a captain some uh primaris intercessors uh and uh, the eradicators that's what they're called yes the eradicators the three guys with the uh, melter rifles do you like the new space marines um, I do a lot, actually. The only thing I dislike about them is their helmets. I think that they were right the first time with all of the Firstborn sort of very Darth Vader-like helmets sure. with the uh, the big face grill. Yeah, the and uh, it's easy enough to the uh, boy helmets. Uh, yeah, it's easy enough to just like bit sorter or find uh, like older tactical marine helmets. They they're the same size. Yeah, I've seen people uh, but do otherwise, it with yeah. the beaky marines too. They put the beaks yeah. on the Primaris heads. I very much enjoy the Beaky Marine helmets myself. I'm a big fan of those, so I'm very happy to see all those Horus Heresy plastics. I will uh, use them plenty uh, when I get around to painting Ravenwing. Uh, so yeah, those those are appreciative too. But uh, yeah, I actually I, I I do appreciate the the way that the Primaris look. Uh, it's a lot of good airbrush and volumetric highlighting practice trying to paint. Um, one color over so many different surfaces. Right. Whereas with my elves, it, it's it's a lot of different complex colors in small spaces. Well, I know, like, like cloth you know, and armor and leather. When the Primaris first came out, they were a little controversial, as as anything when you change anything, I suppose. Um, but you know, people were some people were super into them, and I'm of the opinion that's what Space Marines should probably look like, just in general. Um, because yeah. the old ones, the models mm -hmm. don't seem to reflect how they're described uh, in both like like novels and in the lore of the rule books and yeah. such. Uh, yeah. If you want an, a very cynical but straightforward look at it, Games Workshop wanted to take their best-selling army of all time, which has the largest amount of players, 
who have been collecting the army for about 25 years or so and ask themselves, how do we get everybody to keep buying more of that? Oh, it's simple. <laughs> Let's find a, a cool way to reboot the entire range of Space Marines and make people buy all of those miniatures again over the next 25 years. Right, because all the old ones works. are really squat and short. Yeah, they they are a little bit uh, a little bit short, and people doing true scale like conversions for Space Marines has been a thing for a long time, and now I guess they don't have to do that anymore. But um, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of the fluff they came up with for the Primaris Marines, but I do really like the models. Yeah, you're always going to have that sort of thing where it's like, how do you, how do you uh, square the circle in terms of um, trying to make t- new technology? in a setting where it's much like Dune, where everything is more, um, like, technologically regressive and everything's um, a, shrouded in... yeah, Everything's a yeah. ritual, or uh, they're following a template. Yeah, and forgotten relics and stuff. Right. So, yeah, I, I can understand how that's a little difficult to, like, make a wholly new thing in that setting. Yeah, they were never uh, going to make everybody happy. Uh, mm-hmm. With, yeah. with those changes, but I think they look great. Um, yeah, I painted exactly one Space Marine good. ever, and it was a Primaris. Mm-hmm. That's what I've been working on. Yeah, yeah, and you've what been uh, you've been doing. Uh, I think it was a cyberpunk theme for them. You didn't do just regular. Yes, dark um, I didn't. I didn't want to get too much into that if we wanted to either talk right. about it later or just have me talk about my hobby for 30 minutes before the show even starts. Well, uh, yeah, we'll get us, into it. Us when talking we get about into our it. hobbies for 30 minutes kind of is the mm-hmm. show, so. <laughs> Understood. What about you, Destro? What have you been working on? Well, uh, it has been a little while since we, we last talked, but uh, during that time, I have been doing an absolute ton of overtime at work so i haven't had a huge amount of hobby time recently but i have been doing a couple things uh i did some some more videos for my channel i did uh i did a pinning thing for a for a towel for a friend of ours oh yeah yep yeah and uh right now i am on to the painting process for the big skaven dune crawler conversion thing that i did that's the Adeptus Mechanicus slash Rat thing, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. that thing. That's one of the videos that I put up was uh, was the build process, and now I'm into painting that. Oh, very and nice. I also picked up the Leagues of Votan starter army box thing because I want to do some steampunk Votan because I think that's really cool. Can we talk about the Votan for just a second? Um is it just me, or is the box, the logo on the box, the Autobot symbol? Um, it it, it, is, a similarities. Bit, it is a little bit Transformers, yes, in the way they've done the logo <laughs> specifically. Also, in my head, I say League of Voltron. So. <laughs> I, I don't know how you get around something looking that similar when really it's like... Uh, they they want to do an emblem which screams Space Dwarves, which right. is ultimately going to be a bearded person with, with either Space... Yeah, with runes and, and like space goggles. And I don't know how you stylize that emblem without it looking like an Autobots emblem. So <laughs> They should have um, just had some more robots in disguise. Oh my god, they do have robots in disguise they in that do. army. They do have robots in disguise. <laughs> they are Transformers. Yeah. Okay, confirmed. Uh, yep, they're, they're Transformers. Uh, they've got 
robots in disguise, but not enough heads for the robots so, in disguise to do the whole army that way, unfortunately. You're making them steampunk, so you're just making them Caradron car- overlords? Well, I did buy some Caradron, actually, is, is the thing, and uh, I used some of the bits okay. to build, like, a test model. So I've got a Votan guy holding the, like, steam-powered minigun thing that is the heavy weapon that the Arcanauts come with. Okay. Uh, that was that was kind of like, you know, can I make these work together? Is is trying to put that on one of the uh, one of the Votan guys, and of course the the Arcanauts bot only comes with one of those. Uh, so I'm going to need to figure out what to do for the rest of them, but I'll probably get one of them to try and hold the little spear gun thing. And like I'll, Skyhook, I'll probably. I think you come with a few if you buy a Grunstock Thunderers kit. Yeah, you'd have to look at the spur on the website. Well, I'm, I'm, so now that I know that it's going to work to like give them the weapons and things, I'm probably going to try and pick up the uh, the start collecting box for the Caradron because uh, I, I didn't want to, you know, drop a hundred bucks on the start collecting if the whole deal wasn't going to work at all. I'd much rather drop, you know, fifty bucks on the uh, the Arcanauts Company box and then, well, if that doesn't work, that doesn't work. I don't know why, but in my head the the League of Votan models seem way bigger than the Caradron models. They are. They okay. are actually larger models. Um, the, the bodies are, are much out of scale. So you can't really make the bodies work, but the heads are fine. Okay. So I've taken the heads from the uh, the Arcanauts, and I'm going to give all of my, my Votan little like bearded steampunk dwarf helmets. Sure, because the Votan are more like um, space Vikings than... And then the well, car- I actually, um, I, I saw the sprue when I was at Nova. Like, if you walked over to the Games Workshop booth, they would show you the sprues and everything. There's a very diverse set of heads okay. in, like, just even the core troop box. Like, young and old, cybernetic, not cybernetic, goggles, like, like uh, cigars. It's it's one Men, of the most women. diverse. Yeah, they have, yeah, yeah, they yeah, have yeah. a ton of head options on those sprues for the, the heads. That's and so cool. I think what I'm going to do... Because, you know, I don't want to have a whole bunch of Caradron bodies and things sitting around that I'm not using for anything. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a bunch of the Votan heads and see if they'll fit onto the Caradron bodies. And I feel like they should. And then I'll just, you know, build all of the little Caradron guys with melee weapon options and use them as the, like, berserkers for the Votan list. Sounds good. Okay. I am going to have to pick up some more bases for them, though, I think, because for whatever reason, Games Workshop was like, yeah, all of the all of the Votan are going to be on 28mm bases, and uh, we know that nobody has 28mm bases lying around spare. Uh, you all have 32s and 25s, and we know that, but we're going to put them on 28s. Screw you. <laughs> uh, there is there is um, MDF bases, if, the, if that's your, your spiel. Uh, you can get them for like a penny a base. Yeah, I I, I get them from like Litco. Um, yeah, for, for a bunch of stuff, and they're super cheap. Yeah, yeah, I, I I'll have to pick some up from somewhere, but you know I've got like a hundred count bag of cheap plastic thirty two millimeters, and I've got a hundred count bag of cheap plastic twenty five millimeters, and <laughs> I mean, do you even care sufficient. really that much? Because are you going to be playing with someone who might care? I I don't know how. For you'll for this will this will illustrate my lack of knowledge in 40k. I don't know how big a deal base size is for gameplay. So. Uh, 
It also depends on the environment. Like I am, I am an Age of Sigmar TO. Like I do run events, and I would imagine um, in any environment where you're talking about tournament play, yeah. uh, a, an event packet would ask you to have them on the correct base sizes. Um, you can always ask the tournament organizer in advance if something's okay due to like either, either a quirk of your collection of miniatures or a problem as in like, hey, my my model didn't come with a base or um, the website isn't clear on what base I should use. And I w- uh, a tournament organizer would you know solve your problem and give you a good answer. Um, however, anything outside of that, as long as you get your opponents okay, you're fine to do whatever you want. Like... Uh, uh, if you're just playing in a gaming group or um, like a, amongst friends, all of them would understand that you're not acting in bad faith when you're trying to play in whatever base sizes you want. Yeah, for for me, I don't really go to tournaments. I'm probably not going to do very much playing of the game with this army. So for me, it's more of an aesthetic thing. I want sure. them all to be on bases that are the same size. Understood. Yeah. <laughs> as much Makes as is possible, you know. Anyways, like I, you know, I don't want to have. Here's my little infantry that are on in thirty twos, and here's my little infantry that are on a visibly different base size. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, and I, I guess is twenty eight millimeter um, base. Is that a different new size for for Games Workshop? Um, not necessarily. It's new ish. Unfortunately, it's mostly because. Games Workshop tends to, the miniatures designers design bases like that they think are appropriate, and they started putting some Warcry models, which were the in-between size. Like, it's not big enough for a 32, and it's, I'm sorry, it's too big for a 25, and it's too small for what we think is appropriate for a 32, so we're going to make an in-between base. So there's certain Warcry warbands, like the Chaos ones, the ones that are actually, like, um, made for Warcry uh, some of the fighters will specifically come on twenty. They're not even twenty eight. They're twenty eight point five mil bases. Yeah, sure. that's, that's probably the size um, that's in here. I, yeah. was, I was just rounding it, but yeah, uh, yeah. It, you no, know, I, I I don't understand why they made a twenty eight point five. It's not on you. Yeah. It's like why did you why did you do this? Why did you feel that this was appropriate to construct? And, yeah, why so, didn't you just um, put them on thirty twos? The the prevailing right. theory that I've seen is. That because uh, Age of Sigmar has melee engagement ranges, and the mm-hmm. twenty-five millimeter base is like smaller than an inch, if your guys are yeah. on twenty-fives, then they can actually fight in two ranks. But if they're on twenty-eights, then they can't. Uh, that is true. However, the miniatures designers do not take into account rules when they design their miniatures. Shocking. Um, other. Yeah, they, they I don't want to say they don't care. It's just not part of their design philosophy. That's why I said, um, and this is why it's like I've, uh, I'm not alone in having asked Games Workshop staff, like miniatures designers at conventions or at like Warhammer Fest or something, why did you do this? And the answer is usually, to, for some reason, it's like, yeah, we just felt like it. We felt that was appropriate. And um, yes, it makes for craziness amongst gamers who really wanted like, you know, to use their 25s or their 32s. Uh, right. Like, and that's a, that brings up the example of, like, are they are they cycling out 25-millimeter bases? And the answer is, unfortunately, also no. There are new models that come out that are on 25-millimeter bases. Like, um, most of the newer Death Infantry are all on 25-millimeter well, bases. It's like the Grip Hounds, I think, for the Stormcasts are on 25s. And 
Oh, oh no, there the are Griff, 40 the mil bases. are on much larger bases. Oh, wait, I'm thinking of the one that comes with the guy in the Dominion box. Okay, that one might be. <laughs> Which is he's weird. in a Dominion box? He's a... No, he's on a 40. No, the little one? Uh, the one that hangs thinking... out with the guy with the, the scepter? Oh, you, uh, yeah, he might be on a... Th- I, I'd have to I'd have to check. We've I think got it's that 32, box lying actually. around somewhere. But yeah, right. But the, the, the point is that there's like there's there is not much rhyme or reason, at least from a gameplay perspective, on what goes on what base. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it can't be like yeah. old old school where like you know you have a giant model on a 25 millimeter square. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Looking looking at the promotional miniature for Warhammer Online. The, Age of uh, Reckoning. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 Gorguts and Gazbag Gaz or whatever it is yeah. and. Giant chunky pewter thing, little tiny twenty five millimeter square because everything Amazing. was on those. Yeah, because yeah. he was going to rank up somehow. Oh yeah, totally. He was going to rank up for sure. Tech Techless used to be on a twenty five mil square. Amazing. Yeah, because he was a regular human or regular humanoid sized uh, uh, model. I'm no wonder he messed up I'm making the item that you would accidentally refer to an elf as being a human martin yeah human humanoid uh just like you know human shaped Uh, (laughs) i know yeah human shaped yeah i've uh i've got of course a bunch of old tomb kings and they were all on 25s as well and i uh i've moved my kalita to a 32 round and i think she fits a little bit better on that base size i imagine a lot of seems to be a good thing for hero bases yeah well, I, in sh- to shocking no one, have been working on more Marvel Crisis Protocol. Um, Ooh, I've been painting nice. up the new Hydra um, releases. Um, so I just finished Arnim Zola, uh, the inspiration for Ninja Turtles Krang. Um, and then I finished up Baron Strucker, um, who, if you don't read the comics, um, might not know who he is. He was in Age of Ultron for like five minutes in the beginning. Um so, oh, very nice. But uh, I've been having a lot of fun with those. The 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 painting process for Zola was weird because I had to paint the little head that goes inside his chest first, then glue it inside, and then I glued in a clear plastic over the front of it. I had to mask off the screen where his fa- the face is, and then and then prime it and paint it. Um, it looks really cool when it's done, but it was sort of like, I was like, I don't think I've ever had to do this we this weird paint, assemble, prime, paint again, uh, thing in my life. Um, yeah, was... there's uh one of the, one of the new Sylvaneth miniatures, uh, the Lady of Vines, I think it is, has this weird little sort of chest insert piece. Okay. That that they like in the directions split explicitly tell you. You should probably paint this first. Well, I mean, in the, in Zola's case, like I literally couldn't get a paintbrush to that face if I wanted to, um, because it's not just the screen that's solid; it's the whole front half of him was the clear plastic. Um, so when he is, when he was assembled, like there's no way for a brush. I've sealed the face inside of the yeah, model. yeah. Uh, it was yeah. pretty cool, and it turned out really well. I was really happy with it. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what I've been working on. Now I'm working on Malekith, the Dark Elf. Uh, you know, since we have el- our our Elf expert on, but uh, but uh, yeah, they um one of the reasons I'm pretty sure Games Workshop changed the name of Malekith is not not only because of the the Marvel character, but also because it's like they wanted something. 
Yeah, yeah, they wanted something more um, like brand focused in terms of terminology. Uh, yeah, isn't well, he still yeah. around? I he he he's like a yeah yeah deity. He was thing, renamed as know. he was renamed as Malarian. Um, okay. They haven't really done anything with him because they've been more focused on um, using Marathi as a character, and Marathi's done like she she's in the setting like a lot. Um, she's actually done things. With she's him. a goddess now, right? Um, so. Yeah, she. They forwarded her character. They gave her. Um, she was like the. Um, you know how Games Workshop tends to do those campaign series right at the end of an edition of a game, yeah. Where they like do big narrative beats and such. And um, I think Broken Realms. There were there wasn't a lot that happened in Broken Realms like work that like I think Games Workshop executed well. But the first the first act was where Marathi basically came out um, of hiding in terms of like. Um, hiding her beast form. Normally, she would like show herself at like the Super Friends Council and stuff at her, and I'm using air quotes here, human form. Uh, but really, she's like the giant snake harpy, very much looking like a demon Primarch Fulgrim. Uh, right. And uh, so now the two versions of herself can appear on the battlefield together. Uh, she took over one of the cities of Sigmar. It used to be an allegiance inside the cities of Sigmar book. Um, it is technically st- it's still playable. They said that they don't want to take away um, what it's uh, anvil something, could... right? Yeah, anvil anvil guard. guard. Um, yeah. Yes. So she took it over. Uh, she kicked out all of the Sigmar loyalists, and um, it is now called the city of Har Kiron. Um, it wasn't exactly the most lawful city to begin with. It was kind of like Tortuga from Pirates of the Caribbean, very much um, uh, a hive of scum and villainy. Love it. Uh, but it was, but it was still like you know a bastion of order in like when the known universe is ninety eight percent slaves to darkness, warriors, a chaos stuff. Yeah, um, the that uh, bot- right. The the um, so, um, quote that I've seen for for the Grand Alliance Order, which I think the Daughters of Cain are actually yes. still part of, is yes, and they will. Yeah, that the we'll stay that, that way. the Order faction is not. The Order Faction, because everyone in it is good guys. The Order Faction is the Order Faction, because everyone in it lives in cities and doesn't like chaos. Well, yeah, they all have their own um, idea of what Order should be. They are the super friends of, of, of Warhammer, basically, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they all have... Um, if you want to use Star, I, I, I use Star Trek as an example a lot, for those who remember um, Deep Space Nine's Dominion, um, the Dominion, while very much bad guys and an antagonist of the setting, are still technically trying to impose their own idea of order upon civilization, and that does not involve turning everyone into skeletons or chaos monsters <laughs> or just duffing everybody up with right. with, with orcs. Well, uh, yeah. Ma- so, uh, I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah, I was gonna just say like this Malekith model. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, for Marvel Crisis Protocol, but it's on a giant cat with bat wings. Oh, I definitely um, haven't uh, seen it then. It's a uh, he's standing on top. Of it. It's wild. It's like the most heavy metal model I've seen in in Marvel Crisis Protocol. It looks very much like like an '80s like um, like metal poster. Um, very nice. Yeah, it's super fun, and and it's a project because it's probably the biggest model in the game uh, so far. Oh wow! Oh wow! And I, that might not be true in about a week because the Sentinels are releasing. But um, 
I mean, uh, I, I've seen yeah. like Thanos and Dormammu, and those were pretty big. But Dormammu is guys... pretty big. Um, the the but the I think it's the wings on this cat um, are really wide, and so it sort of gives the model a massive presence. Um, but uh, and I think Dormammu is just straight up taller uh, that model. But uh, yeah, it. Uh, no, I, uh, just a fun fact for everybody. I am almost positive my painting coach painted uh, Thanos for Marvel's Marvel Crisis Protocol. Okay, that's yeah. awesome. I'm just I'm just trying to make sure because I'm looking up the model and it's like, yep, I'm pretty sure Aaron painted that. I could be wrong, um, or he painted it for like a convention show for Atomic Mass. Could games, be, but yeah. yeah. That's that's pretty they, cool. They've had a few people do their like box art and stuff. Um, I think they have an in-house guy that does a lot of them, and then every so often someone else does one of the other ones. Yeah, the name Aaron Lovejoy doesn't ring a bell with anybody, right? Uh, well, no. I mean, I'm I'm just you know sitting over here on the uh, the Pacific West Coast, uh, not really being aware of anyone in the space who's not like Richard Gray or something. So, gotcha. No, yeah, I'm I don't. Curious. They they come with like little credits uh, pamphlets, and I think I've threw them all away, but. Um, Okay. Or, no, it was just it was just a because uh, when you were saying like really big models for Marvel Crisis Protocol, my my uh, yeah friend of mine, he's always like, oh wait, here are credits. Yeah. Um, nope, not this one. Never mind then. My apologies. Thanos isn't uh, uh, very big. Yeah. In, uh, okay. Well, his but, throne is. He comes with this giant. Throne yes, he comes with the big. I I call it uh, Papa's rascal chair. Um, <laughs> that he brings with him to every fight for some reason. Um, yeah. But. Uh, which you actually only just use like it. the emperor when they make an emperor model. right? He's sitting on a big. It's, it's like one of those, one of those fighting game intro type things where at the start of the match he's like just sitting on the big chair and then gets up off and the chair disappears. Except the chair doesn't disappear. Coming in with a steel mm-hmm. chair. Um, he, it actually you don't actually play with the chair unless you're playing what's called an ultimate encounter, which is like a souped up version of the villains, and you have multiple teams taking yeah. on the baddie. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, I guess technically speaking, the terrain is the biggest models they've made. But as far as characters go, Malekith and the Sentinels are pretty, pretty big. Okay, yeah, the the apartment Very building nice. is enormous. I have seen <laughs> yes. it. Well, the the Sanctum Sanctorum is even bigger. You're, you're um, not gonna you're not gonna outdo that with like character models on foot. <laughs> no, probably not. I think I think the reason they said they have a funny story about why Malekith is on this big bog tiger, which is what it's called. Um, the guy who does, I think, works the licensing with Marvel is a huge fan of Malekith. And he's like, I really want Malekith to be big and awesome. And so they're like, OK, how do we make the Dark Elf big and awesome? And so they they found like three panels from the War of the Realms storyline where he's on this big flying cat and said, there we go. It's um it's a wild model. Um, and I'm I'm terrified of how long it's going to take. But yeah, that's what I've been working on. Oh yeah, that's I do have another I do have Sounds another good. secret project that I'm not going to talk about here on the off chance that my wife listens to this podcast, but I'm, oh, yeah. I'm doing a miniature yeah, yeah. for her. I know about so. that one. Yeah, you know about that one. Uh that is Secrets. that is a a large model, but uh It is, yeah. Yeah, so going to going to give the airbrush a workout on that one, I think. <laughs> I wish you well with that. Yeah, actually, over the last couple of years since I've started on the Marvel stuff, I've actually been using my airbrush more and more and more, and I've become, I wouldn't say, like, really good with it, but comfortable with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, you should always be comfortable with your tools. What, I, what I've what i told people is that it's, 
some of the ideas behind regular painting are still there with airbrushing, but it's obviously a different skill set um, with some similar vectors. Um, yeah. And it, it takes it takes some some getting used to because, you know, you there's a lot to pay attention to. You got pressure, thickness of paint, and how that relates to the pressure. And um, and I, what I've learned. I would is recommend. That, um, I'm sorry. Oh, keep going. I was gonna say I, I've just learned that I have transparency is your friend when it comes to airbrush paints. Um, um, there is um, uh I, I would call them a business, but it's it's, it's like a studio. They're called CK Studios. If you see any of their, um, if they're at a convention, I recommend taking their seminars. They do a lot on airbrushing. Both they they offer both beginner and what I mean when a beginner, it's like absolutely like if you if this is your first time ever airbrushing. Right. They offer a course for that, but they also offer like advanced sort of boot camps. Like if you really want to take your understanding of the tool to the next level. Um, and usually they, they, at least before they work for Games Workshop, uh, they would offer traveling classes where the ticket was a little expensive. It would be like $200, $250, but it comes with an Imperial Knight. And, okay. you paint the Imper- and you paint the Imperial Knight with them over the course of two or three days. Oh, cool. And, um, yeah, you're learning how to paint. You're all learning how to paint the same model and like learning both beginner and very advanced techniques with it. And because you're spending so much time with them, they really get to impart very complex knowledge instead of like we have two hours to tell you about how an airbrush works. Right. Well, and I've learned that yeah. with an airbrush, it's it's easy to do some things that are quite difficult with a brush, right? Like blending the colors into each other is is almost almost laughably easy with an airbrush as compared to trying to do it with acrylic paints. Yes. With a brush. Smooth blends. Uh... Object source lighting. Uh, lots I don't, of nice, there are certain nice things. There are certain things I do with an airbrush, um, and they, these are things you don't really think about until you really get comfortable with the tool. Which, um, like, including just like darkening shadows yeah. and making like filters and stuff like that. Stuff that looks like it took like an extra five or six hours, but really was like about three thirty seconds, seconds with yeah. the airbrush. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I've started using. I have a transparent black color from uh, Pro Krill. Um, that I thin down, and when I'm, I can, I'll put shadows in at the end of the model with that transparent black. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah, actually. I, w- really I, w- nice. I would also recommend looking into inks. I have some inks, so yeah. Uh, what I like about the the transparent line from Procrill is that um, I don't have to worry about the pigment too much. Um, whereas with inks, I'm concerned. I'm often concerned about their durability. I know that they get better if you just let them sit, but I rarely have that kind of patience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you are. Uh, you you play games with your with your models. You don't just do. like, put All them the in time. the display yeah. case, <laughs> like uh, like I have to do because I don't have anyone to play with except my wife. Well, I've had to forge a gaming group, uh, and it takes a lot of constant effort and reinforcing and herding of kittens to make sure that that thing happens. Um, but it has been worth it. I, I now play often like two or three, um, games of Marvel crisis protocol a week and occasionally play other games as well. So yeah, your, uh, your gaming group is uh, pretty cool people. I think some of them listen to this podcast. They're among our uh, five fans. I know, I know a few guys who play AOS, but they, 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 it's more very competitive stuff. Like, um, they help out at LVO and whatnot. Sure. Um, they play in the Southern California area. I think one of them from over there, he's the guy who invented BCP. 
Um, and he's he's a hardcore AOS guy. Okay. We yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a I don't know if you've heard of the Left Coast Corsairs. I'm familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm in San Diego. Um but Gotcha. Uh I don't know that I've ever met any of them, but I have been dipping my toes into competitive gaming with Marvel Crisis Protocol. Um and that's been fun. Uh, but I also still like to play, like, sometimes I just want to bring Wolverine and do Wolverine stuff. Um, and uh, so it's... Oh, yeah, I, I, I can imagine it's it's a very comfortable game, especially games of that size where you can play, like, multiple games in the span of where, like, you might get one casual game in. Yeah, you can of, knock like, out a game. Warhammer. I think we set our timers to 45 minutes a player in the competitive matches. Um, That's great. Yeah, so about an hour and a half. Um and uh, that's been it's been interesting because there's I'm you know because before I would just for other games I would just make lists you know and just kind of throw whatever and now mm-hmm. I'm I'm trying to craft a a, a viable competitive list um, while still remaining kind of lower friendly um, and yeah uh, that's been a lot of fun that's been my personal cross uh, that I carry around but uh, enough about Marvel Crisis Protocol because I'm sure everyone's bored with that but. We have, Martin, you, you got to choose our dumb paint name. Yes, uh, yes, we have to do the dumb paint name of the uh, the mm-hmm. episode, and I did ask Martin, as our guest, to provide the dumb paint name for this episode. So, Martin, uh, what do you have for us today? Um, so, I know, I, I, I know you guys love to choose Games Workshop uh, colors, so I was like, well, I've been working with, I, I, I'm not, I'm brand agnostic, I'll pick up like sure. any sort of brand, where it's like, if I like the color from this one. Uh, I'll, I'll pick it up, but um, uh, there's a lot of Scale 75 colors where I had to actually Google why it's called that. <laughs> it's not a made-up word, but um, or maybe it is, but there's a gray in one of their sets called Miskatonic Gray. And I was like, what does that mean? Okay, and apparently, I actually know that one. <laughs> I know what Miskatonic University is. Well, I had to Google it, so I know it now. But it's a Lovecraft thing, right? Yes. Yeah, I had no idea if I was like, why? What? What does this mean? What is the right, color Miskatonic? Like, if I had to guess, I'd say it's like a pale gray. I don't know. It is. It it it, it is. It is. An, it's a very. That's very from light their their. Gray, that's yeah. from their their fantasy and games line, right? I'm assuming. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I use it a lot. Actually. Yeah, uh, I would. I would definitely expect a pale gray because I do know what Miskatonic University is because it's a Lovecraft thing, and Lovecraft being Lovecraft, I think everything he ever did is in like. Maine. Uh, yeah, very much New England and up. Yeah, New England. And so so I'm, the gray that I'm kind of picturing is the sort of like really thick, you know, fog. New England fog that you'd get kind of rolling in from the uh rolling in from the sea. So that's kind of the color that I'm picturing in my mind when you when you tell me miskatonic gray. Yeah, it it's you're you're not, you're not far off. That's basically what it is. Yeah. Before I knew Martin was picking, um, I, I I saw a color and it's just called envy. It's <laughs> just like what? It's not the color you think it is either. All right, it's... all right. Save that one. We'll we'll definitely yeah yeah we'll do that one next time. Yeah, we'll definitely do me. that one next time. But uh, but yeah, so I'm not gonna look up. I'm not gonna look it up. I'm gonna have to guess what envy means next time. But yeah, Miskatonic right. Gray. That is. The only reason I have any idea where I'd be going with that is because I know where the the word miskatonic originates right. from. Uh, that, yeah, was... that, that's probably the only reason I understand it as well. 
Yeah, like if you just told me Miskatonic Grey and I didn't know anything about H.P. Lovecraft or New England, I'd be like, all right, what is this? What a dumb word. What a, yeah. What's going I, on I knew it here? had to be something because everything else in the box and like they don't they don't have really, they don't have like a game system IP to really like, you know, um, slap words onto. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I mean, and they the have like you know. a bunch of like, like Bloodfest Crimson is a color they make. You know, like, oh yeah, I, 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 I've uh, killed more than one bottle of that paint in my Lumineth. <laughs> it's a nice red. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, I think my only complaint about the Fantasy and Games line is it oftentimes feels like it's got poor coverage, but as I've painted more and more, that has become less of a concern for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I think, I think like, poor it, coverage mostly means at this point that you can use that for really nice fades. <laughs> I mean, I only really care about coverage if I'm doing base coats, and then after that, I'm layering stuff on anyway. So it's like, um, if it has poor I coverage, try it with an airbrush. Right, exactly. Because uh, I've yeah. painted a bunch of uh, Night Haunt in, with uh, fluorescent paints, uh, and I want if you want to talk about poor coverage. Um, oh boy, fluorescent paints! Yeah, they, I'm still, they don't I'm have still, any. I'm still tiptoeing into that one. But, uh, Even with the, yeah. my airbrush, it takes like eight coats, yeah. nine coats sometimes for these colors to to become opaque. Gotcha. Um, yeah, that's, yeah uh, was, that's pretty brutal. Yeah, so it, I think I don't know that I could paint my ghosts with a paintbrush. They just I just wouldn't use those colors because um, I think whatever the, the 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 fluorescent material that's suspended in those paints, I think your brush just literally physically is moving it around too much um and so no i i uh, i have some of them but really like i use them to do the use the airbrush to like do light like literal like light filters like glows like i'll paint white and then i'll or you can use them to like intensify colors sometimes yeah Uh, i've seen them used to a very nice effect as um battle damage on like mechanical things Okay. Oh, nice. You know, I I think it was um, uh, what's the guy who does the Marvel Crisis Protocol tutorials? Ghost Zarastro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy. Uh, his General Grievous has some battle damage using fluorescent paints. He's a, he he uses a lot of fluorescent paints for things like fire and yeah and yeah you know like we got hit by a blaster and there's like little smoldery bits in there kind of thing. I don't want to say I bought a black light flashlight just because I used a bunch of fluorescent paints, um, but I did. So, um, and sometimes I just turn it on and look at my models glowing in the dark. <laughs> well, uh, it's it's only only a slightly less legitimate reason than the one I the reason I have a blacklight flashlight, which is uh, that I got some UV resin. Okay, yeah, that's fun. All right, maybe we should start doing the actual steampunk. Stuff, yeah, we right? should we should get into the actual topic now that we've we've talked about everything we have to lead up to that. So. Uh, steampunk as a thing, it was kind of a, a sci-fi subgenre originally. It was like, what if we reinterpreted history in a way where the dominant tech was steam power and like coal power and industrial sort of things like that never really caught on? I think it's supposed to be like versus electricity, right? Like, it's 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 steam power versus electric power as it came to be in the real world but um, yeah yeah i find yeah. i find i've i've always found this to be sort of like uh chasing like uh, what might have been based on the aesthetics that we've um 
like sort Associate. of yeah yeah like um all of this um like almost forgotten aesthetic of the victorian and um i believe edwardian era i think is what the right. Edward, like the early the very early 1900s like pre-world war one sort of era of what was considered like scientific drawings and um all of those yes and at certain points like this technology was tried but either just like the internal combustion engine or or like the work of Nikola Tesla changed how science um basically developed and uh yeah so i've always found it fascinating that sort of um trying to capture that era of time um in fiction well i've um i've all, i've often made the joke that that steampunk is bullshit um <laughs> because or not so much a joke as much as a pithy statement. And because it's mostly for me, sometimes it feels like all it is is like bad sci-fi with someone bolting brass and gears onto something. There, there is definitely a lot of steampunk that is just brass and gears bolted onto things. Like this asshole put a clock on something and suddenly it's steampunk. You know nerds I mean? discover Home Depot and are cheap in their cosplays. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. what you were. You said that earlier uh, in yeah. the day. And I because it's true. It's it's right. it's um. If you, uh, <clears throat> I have a unique family history in that uh, my mother used to help um, organize um, the science fiction conventions, like when there were not so many of them, like WorldCon and stuff like that, where your guests of honor were like Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, oh, cool. yeah, like that's Robert cool. Heinlein. We're, we're we're going back like to the seventies and eighties. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think steampunk as, as an aesthetic saw its first iterations in um, uh, nerds are very cheap, um, a, a very cheap tribe, very very thrifty, and so they're like, how can I make a cool costume? Oh, Home Depot right. exists. I can just stick stuff on other stuff, and then it becomes amazing. Yes, amazing. Yeah, I've, uh, I've I've definitely got some steampunk stuff that is like very clearly made of old broken watch parts. <laughs> well, you know, it's I've it's it's a, it's a thing that existed before the word steampunk existed. Um yeah. Cuz cuz in my very cursory cursory research, there were novels in the past that sort of do the thing that steampunk does and then I think the word steampunk doesn't show up until like the 70s. Um Yeah. Like I think what you're what we're all thinking of collectively is the work of Jules Verne, but that's just my opinion. Well, the the thing that I was thinking of actually right now is a book called The Difference Engine that came out in the nineties, and it's uh, it's by William Gibson and another guy. Uh, William Gibson, of course, being famous for writing cyberpunk novels. Well, he wrote a steampunk one as well. Oh, okay. Well, cyberpunk as a with as a word existed before steampunk did, I think. Um. But and then everything became something punk. But yeah, yeah. There, there was a lot of something punks that have arisen, especially in recent years. Uh, we've had right. whale punk, we've had diesel punk, we've had you know everything punk. Uh, but but cyberpunk and steampunk were kind of the the defining originators. The yeah, the the OG punk concepts. The other author you're looking for is Bruce Sterling. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, and like, there's even things that had genre names before that people have slowly morphed their genre name into something punk. Like uh, Ray Punk is one I've heard, and they're just referring to like. 30s oh yeah, the sci-fi. 
the the Z Rusty sort of Flash Gordon well, the, type the, stuff. The Buck Rogers. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Buck Rogers, and I, I've actually read Buck Rogers, uh, uh, <laughs> which it, I it, actually like. The quote unquote Ray Punks, but I've always been a fan of pulp. Most everything. Yeah, um, but so. Buck Rogers is very pulpy and also very clearly was originally a serial because every few chapters they reintroduce all the characters. Oh, good. In case you forgot who uh, Buck Rogers was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in the, in the time between all of the magazines that it was originally published in coming out. So, so Destro, you're, you're, you are more steeply embedded in steampunk. Maybe I you am, can tell me I'm a big why. fan. It's not stupid. Aesthetic. All right, all right. Okay, so I'm a big fan of the steampunk aesthetic, um, but I do acknowledge that there are definitely ways to do it wrong. And I think that one of the ways that you can, can do steampunk a disservice is just by sticking cogs on everything and calling it steampunk. Okay. Uh, that's not necessarily what steampunk is about, in, as far as I'm concerned. Um, steampunk is about, you know... Yes, you you put brass on everything, but it's not about superfluous cogs. It's kind of about that sort of, you know, brass and leather and, like, everything is kind of fantastical and powered by steam power. And we're using this to do really interesting, weird things. Uh, You know, you have, like, punch card, early punch card computers in there. Uh, You have a very clear hierarchical cast system going on in there typically you have uh sometimes you'll get you know airplanes uh there was some movie i don't i don't think i ever saw it but there was uh sky captain and the world of tomorrow i think it was yeah and is that is that steampunk if just looking at it it looks like pulp sci-fi to me just looking at sky captain and the world of tomorrow like the aesthetic is is very very sort of steampunk but with airplanes but with airplanes yeah uh th- there is um a famous anime film called steam boy uh, which i was actually uh i, I presume Destro, you've seen it uh, i have not seen that i've no. actually seen uh, it in a twist so uh, in a twist I, I, yeah i'm not usually oh, okay. the anime oh, gotcha. guy um, this this is this was like it's not part of like it was an original script it was an original screenplay um had when it was actually like they got a lot of like famous um american actors to do like all of the voices and whatnot patrick stewart's in it right yeah he plays i believe the father and um i i'd have to uh look it up uh I'm, i vaguely remember and I think it was the akira guy who made it right yes yes it was it was definitely like it looks like steampunk akira um and I, that's why I say it's like um, for me, steampunk is not as fascinating as the time, pl- the, the like the time and setting it's like it's set in. So I think okay. people are chasing that nostalgia for the aesthetic of like late nineteenth century, like very very early twentieth century, um, but with less like, cholera, right? With less <laughs> cholera, with with less World War One. Yeah, a lot of like you know, just the 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 height of like the industrial revolution, where everything is just changing so quickly. Much like our today, where um, presumably all of us in the chat remember a childhood without touch, like touch screen, like Absolutely. computer. Like, not only did we go from having um, 
uh, a phone that was like on a wall, like a wired phone, like a landline, to having a phone in your pocket. But now that phone has a touchscreen and the processing power of a home computer, if not better than a home computer. So like unless you're using your computer for like home gaming or like office work, all of the conveniences that you have over the span of like maybe 10 years are like captured in the device that you have right now. Um, people could be listening right. to this posthumously on their mobile phone. Right. Um, well, so, I mean, you have yeah. you can access the world's information network with something yes. that fits in your pocket. That similar tumult was occurring during the time that steampunk in general, I would say in general because it's it's not a one size fits all sort of setting. It is it is a collection of tropes and nothing more, but predominantly in my opinion, it idolizes and chases after that sort of time period and that that rapid advancement in technology where like electricity allowed factories to be open for longer hours um transportation weaponry um how people even got like their information and entertainment was just rapidly changing and um steampunk i think tries to do that like i guess more cleanly uh because internal combustion engines unfortunately are very destructive both to the environment and people around them uh, they are gas guzzlers, literally. Um, and so I think right. the, yeah. Um, but Steamboy without, without like going to like over the plot, like it's, it's, it's an adventure film about like competing scientists and, um, their grand technology, which is of course pure fantasy. I believe there is like a walking castle or something. Um, but like they're, they're fighting over, um, which I thought was like most important is like they're, they're ready to show off the technology at a world's fair, which is happening in London. And the idea of world fairs, we don't really have those anymore, but even we have, yeah. the, they live on like in conventions, but like not even fandom conventions, but like consumer electronic expo or like usually like smaller yeah, like, expos like, like, like trade that. shows and right. stuff. Yeah. Trade shows and stuff, but like world's fair, literally like they would set up small towns and people from all over the world who couldn't travel by, super fast intercontinental airlines like we have today would literally travel to these exhibitions and this sort of technology would be shown off in concept form. Much of the early technology, which would become the Walt Disney Park sort of like, you know, the attractions. Um, At like the 1964 what, World's Fair. Yeah, yeah, some stuff like that. I'm just using that as like a cornerstone of what type of oddities you'd see there. And I think that steampunk is born of that mystery, that extravagance, and that um, uh, that appetite for wild science. And and steampunk. Uh, oh, I went and looked up some screenshots of Sky Captain, yeah. by the way, and I, I think I might place that a little bit more into diesel punk. But there are definitely some some steampunk elements going on with that. So you should look uh, up but... Steam Boy. <laughs> yeah, I should. And I think there's a few steampunk elements uh, in, in some of Miyazaki's films as well, when you get oh, into yeah. it. Uh, the yeah. anime, Howl's, uh, moving, sort of Howl's Moving Castle, like Steam Boy, tries to capture that era. Like, there, the, uh, there, there is an XP for World War... I mean, well... Um, Howl's Moving Castle. He didn't write the script. He didn't write like the source material. That like Howl's Moving Castle, I believe, is a series of children's novels. Um, but like it captures that era of like the immediately prior to World War One sort of Edwardian era. Yeah, um, Europe. And, and one of the other big things about steampunk is uh, that there are still giant chunks of the world that haven't been explored. So you yeah. have those kind of. Um, 
you know, pulp explorers with the, the pith helmets and the Britishness going out into the jungle and sort of pushing back the frontiers of scientific knowledge and, and learning about all of these places that nobody has really been, uh, except yeah. for, of course, the people who originally lived there. But uh, this is this is uh, British sci-fi we're talking about, so they so, don't count. You, so if I'm 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 putting this all together, I think in my head. So steampunk is sort of like they want to capture the a romanticized version of like sort of high technological innovation, and since they want to keep it in the realm of fantasy, they chose a, a sort of technology that never really became a dominant technology, right? Yeah. And also, there's electric guns. Um, but, uh, and, and I think a lot right. of these, like when you get into things like diesel punk, diesel punk just looks like the next evolution of, of steampunk, right? Like it's, that's when you start getting into like world war one and two kind of era stuff. Yeah. Diesel punk is, um, I think war machine is a, is a reasonably good example of that in the miniature okay. space. Yeah. A lot uh, more I art, was thought um, that art was deco. If if you look at the aesthetic of the Dishonored games, those are um, well Art everything's Deco. powered by whale oil. So yeah. fan fans refer to that as being whale punk, uh, but it is it is also very much in that Steam kind punk. of aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you um, are a lot of Art Deco, like I'm I'm looking it up right now. All I see is Art Deco, Art Deco trains, um, World World War like alternate history, World War One and World War Two sort of designs. But Art Deco, famously an art movement in the 1920s, late 1920s, 1930s. Um, and War Machine, yes. War Machine takes, like, uh, War Machine gives Art Deco a giant bear hug and does not let go. Um, <laughs> a lot of these alternate history games, like fantasy style, like alternate World War II stuff, uses, like, that time period aesthetic to make it clearly, like, try and separate it from reality. Like, we're not just telling sure. what if. We're trying to make it more of our own brand by including. It's like, set in a specific yeah. place and time, and the aesthetic yeah. s- sells that. Bioshock also has a, a pretty big love yes. affair with Art Deco. Yeah. I will, uh, absolutely, yeah. Well, and you've got, like, I don't know if uh, any of you played, it was called Arcanum. Um, it was a computer RPG from, I think, the late 90s or early 2000s. And it was a steam. It was a world where there's steampunk and magic, and they're like competing forces in the in the game. Oh, so like thief, most actually, so like most JRPGs. Yeah, but like not written by Japanese people, I guess. Yeah. No, I, I um someone asked that. It's like someone asked that on Twitter the other day. Um, what would you call like mixing high fantasy and like you know sort of like technology? And it's like most JRPGs. Um, right, Final Fantasy VII is a really good example of that. It, I would, yeah, the quintessential example. Uh, but a lot of like other JRPGs too. Like, um, I don't know if the uh, the the panel has heard of a game called Lost Odyssey. I um, have, which, and Lost Odyssey is a good example. Yeah, I th- also, I think I've heard the I, name but haven't seen it. Um, it's made by a studio which was offshoots of of Final Fantasy, like people who left Square Enix, and it's like you know what we're going to make a game that we want to make, not just one that Square Enix wants to make. And of course, there's still it was Final excellent Fantasy. actually. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm just just trying to say it's like it is closely linked to both the staff and and like the the um, the themes um, and uh, art art parallels to Final Fantasy overall. This union of 
um, where like literal swords and sorcery meets like um, bullets, di- yeah, diesel powered and um, steam powered technology. And I think that's where you get back into the Jules Verne stuff. Like Jules Verne, like um, I think it was a novelty at the time, but like when he wrote Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, the idea of a submarine and right. Like, Th- those are ubiquitous now, but like at the time when he wrote it, I'm I'm sure the the uh, the idea of like a a manner yeah, a, sh- a ship that yeah, traveled underwater ships. was a very fantastical yes. idea at the time. And I've mm-hmm. read Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, yeah, and uh, parts of it are good. Most of it's descriptions of fish, but uh, yeah, I mean fish are nice, I guess. <laughs> oh, fish are nice, but I don't want to read like three hundred pages of just fish. Yeah. I mean, it's also, like, extravagant. Like, the, the, there's parts of, like, his submarine which are, like, very Bioshock. Like, they're palatial, and it's like you wouldn't really... Um, even, like, the most advanced United States Navy submarine now does not have, like... No. You know, a library yeah. and a... And, uh, and um, I think... Like, that, a dining hall. That, <laughs> like that. And I think that that is also another a big element of, of steampunk is kind of making things palatial. Like holding on to aesthetic and luxury as kind of core values. Mm-hmm. Yes, very, very uh, pithy, as you said. We have to make it civilized. We have to make it... Um, right, uh, we have to make it fancy. And, yeah, we have to make it posh for our, sens- for our sensibilities. We have to make it fancy. We have to make it uh, plush and pretty and kind of awe-inspiring. Uh, we're gonna have a lot of, you know, like dark wood paneling and and brass Ooh. accents and rich mahogany. Yeah, a lot of nice mahogany. Some some nice leathers, like uh, you know, very luxurious materials um, at the time, of course. And even even now, brass is pretty expensive. But uh, back then, I think that those sorts of things would have been even less accessible. <laughs> I guess I, I guess um, often my um, my exposure to steampunk has not been a good one. Um, it has often been just this is just science fiction, and we threw a skin on it. Um, and yeah. which I guess fiction, isn't a bad science thing. Fiction, science fiction is allowed to be that. Like it's that's true. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I didn't phrase that well. Um, it's fine. No, I no, I I, I, I get what you're, you're. Sometimes it feels like someone wanted the aesthetic but didn't put much thought into yes uh, why yeah. they would write it this way. Um, because ultimately, if you want to be a good writer, you have to create a, um, especially like in a in a fantasy setting, not necessarily like one more rooted in nonfiction. But if you're if you're making something as extravagant and um, uh, complicated as like a steampunk setting it has to be naturalistic as to why the world looks and behaves as it does and if you just like wanted to be there without really giving that much thought if it will feel shallow Um, yeah you you have to you have to put thought into you have to have things like natural philosophy before it was science and and people doing a bunch of things that they they thought should work but didn't really understand because ultimately, right. ultimately, like the, and this is also a theme in that film I was telling you about, um, that the the steam technology, even though it's like it's powering oversized contraptions, but like the the same philosophy or principles of science in in the film apply in the real world, where like just the technology is unpredictable, dangerous, and not as reliable as um, what ultimately became internal combustion engines. Um, unfortunately, because they're environmentally not great. 
Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, so there's not a reason exactly we use diesel on trains instead yeah. of uh, steam power still. Yeah, steam is steam is not exactly the greatest either because you do need something to heat the boilers, and that would probably have been coal. But yes, it's uh, it's fine. So there's like, the, we since we do normally talk about gaming, like I've listed a couple of examples that I I showed you guys earlier um, as far as like things that seem sort of steampunk-ish to me. Um, and like the Adeptus Mechanicus, at least in their current iteration, has some of those elements. The the current um, iteration of the Adeptus Mechanicus does draw a lot from like the the Leonardo da Vinci type drawings. Um, oh yeah, there's and there's the Jules Verne stuff, right? and it, you know, like like that sort of classic science fiction, which is a little bit weird for the Adeptus Mechanicus, which is kind of supposed to be this sort of not cutting edge because 40k doesn't really have cutting edge, but as far as technological advancement goes, they are the custodians of the fancy. I heard some things. dwarves have some tech. Some dwarves do have some tech, yes. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of like smaller press games. Um, like I know that like things like Dracula's America, Wild West Exodus, have steampunk vibes, especially those two because they're sort of set in that same time period just in the united states yeah yeah the the u.s um sort of wild west frontier type thing does does kind of fall into that sort of time period uh steampunk has a general aura of britishness about it uh so it's not going to be exactly the same if you're focusing on the wild west but yeah i don't know man there was a pretty intense a uh, Will Smith movie um, <laughs> with a giant mechanical spider. Oh, I love uh, that the giant otherwise. mechanical spider. Because that yeah, was basically I... steampunk, right? Like... Yes, yes, it was actually. I am reminded um, there was there was an era of time um, during Games Workshops, in my opinion, like its dark age, like of the early 2010s, where their brand presence on the internet was actually like slightly in decline. Like the, the, the lawsuit with um, chapter house had started souring like their, like people's opinions of games workshop within the community. And really there was um, an explosion of um, like um, third party miniatures, not necessarily just for use in Warhammer, but like um, the limited market that was out there for tabletop gaming was finally starting to like branch out uh, uh, beyond like historical miniatures. And if you were playing fantasy games, you were mostly like playing Warhammer or like smaller enterprises. And there was a company called Infamy Miniatures. I don't know if they're still around. I could Google it, but um, uh, they were uh, most famous for, as I recall, um, probably around 10 years ago. Now they made a, um, a Sherlock Holmes line of miniatures but they were okay. um, sort of like, it was like a mirror universe thing, like in Star Trek, where Holmes and Watson were the bad guys, and all of the villains of the Sherlock Holmes universe were the heroes. And they were, um, it was like, I don't I don't really recall, like, because I, I, I didn't really care about the rules of the game. I was like, oh my god, these are, these are ultra detailed, like, uh, 35 mil uh, figures of, like, Holmes and Watson, and they, they were... Um, 
was it was complete fantasy like um uh, like Watson had like a bionic leg and like a Doc Ock like tech marine style robot arm like sure as, like, why a not back, back apparatus that he was like because these are just supposed to be like um I, I uh, fantasy gaming pieces I think mostly for painters and you there there are probably some out there now like I could Google it in five minutes it's like hey we're still around we have this whole thing but it, like. Yeah, I remember it was like they made an Irene Adler, they made a Sherlock Holmes, they made a Watson, there was a Moriarty who was like the 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 heroic university professor um sort of thing, but like um aside from War Machine, um the most steampunk miniatures I've ever seen were from that business. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm just yeah, there's... Gonna... yeah, and uh kind of appropriately enough that that you were mentioning, you know, that was sort of the the decline of Games Workshop's brand on the internet and a bunch of yeah. other new miniature companies were coming out and miniature production was exploding. We have the advent of 3D printing, we have a, the uh you know, yeah, injection molding process becoming smaller and cheaper and easier to do, and there's all this technological innovation going on, and this is starting to sound a little bit familiar, isn't it? <laughs> it is an evil Sherlock Holmes, and he's the one with the robotic apparatus as, like, sort of like a Doc Ock sort of thing. Um, and he came with, um, oh, and the, the hero opposing him is um, a Dr. Henrietta Jekyll. Um, okay. So it's like nice. a woman, uh, uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and she's she has like the uh, the potions like normally that turns her turns Jekyll into Hyde. She has them as like throwing weapons, like she can throw them and they're like um, explosive bombs or something like that. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've noticed nice. that a lot of um, sort of I guess fan fiction authors and, and other authors as well really enjoy taking kind of all of the science fiction of that era and lumping it into a shared universe right they're creating the steampunk cinematic universe yeah the steampunk cinematic universe um which i i suppose would include the league of extraordinary gentlemen if we got down to it that's got oh definitely (laughs) you know the invisible man and uh, dracula and captain nemo Nemo is in that of course Uh, Alan Quartermain, uh, which uh, I went out and read King Solomon's Mines after I learned so about sorry. Alan Quartermain, and uh, I kind of enjoyed it. I thought it was, you know, I mean... It's just very grim. <laughs> product of its time, but... Yeah. Huh. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> as as a as a book, like, yeah, sure, it's it's a grim story, it's got all of this stuff to it, but it, it has that kind of era of discovery type thing going on that I like. I like pushing back the frontiers of knowledge. Expedition. If I had to sum it up in one word. Yeah, expedition. Expedition is a great word. So how does this translate into cyberpunk? Because I know you wanted to talk about that as well. We did, yes. Um, Partly that's because of your particular army, but partly that's because, you know, like we were saying earlier, uh, the steampunk and cyberpunk being the the OGs of this kind of everything punk thing. Like, cyberpunk is kind of the other side of that. Cyberpunk is... Steampunk tends to be a little bit more hopeful, a little bit more like there's still so much to learn and still so many places that technology can go. And yes, the technology is a little bit dangerous, and yes, we have societal unrest and all kinds of problems going on, 
but we're still in an area where we believe that those can be fixed. And cyberpunk is kind of the other side of that coin. If, if uh, steampunk is, um, and I hate to use this given the British connotations, a rebellion against ignorance, um, I would say that cyberpunk is a rebellion against authority. Yeah, I can, I, I'd buy that. Yeah, in, in many ways it certainly is. And um, not, of course, just any authority, uh, but corporate authority spe- specifically is uh, kind of the, the big boogeyman of cyberpunk. Because it typically takes place in a world where governments, if they exist at all, are sort of figureheads and the real power is in corporations, right? Generally speaking, in cyberpunk. Yeah, yeah. The the two big kind of defining novels of cyberpunk that sort of set the stage for everything that would come after them are Snow William Crash. Gibson's Neuromancer and Snow Crash. Yeah. And the movie and, Blade Runner. Well, yes, but... Right. <laughs> Uh, but Snow Crash, uh, I believe, did come come before the movie, so I, I'm not sure in the exact timeline of that. But in terms oh, of sure. literature, I, anyways, yes, I, 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 I uh, Snow Crash or Snow Crush, Snow Crash, Crash. yeah. Uh, Blade Runner definitely did a lot to help define the aesthetic of cyberpunk. Yeah, but the yeah. themes were established by yeah, cool. Neuromancer yeah. and Snow Crash. I think the original Snow Crash is great cuz the main character is named Hero Protagonist. Yeah, um, it's uh... it's fantastic. It, <laughs> it may if you don't find that at least a little bit funny, then first of all I don't know how to help you and second of all you probably won't like the book, but <laughs> No, I I I understand where you're coming from cuz Blade Runner while the aesthetic is certainly like cemented cuz it's like nothing like looks like this period and like it was so like uh, pivotal in terms of like um, filmmaking and innovation, but really the story of Blade Runner, where it has one at all, because I find the, the original Blade Runner script to be very much a mess um, and like choppy and not really sure about its own ideas. It's mostly a humanist story about like understanding the difference between humanity and robots and like the the, th- the themes that there may not be that much separation once you create self aware robots. Yeah, um, the, 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 whole... the, the the themes more core to cyberpunk as a whole. Or as you said, more in those novels, or like the themes of rebellion and oppression. Yeah, and there's, right. there is definitely that element of kind of transhumanism and and getting into what is the difference between a robot and a person, and like you can explore that stuff in that sphere certainly. Well, even in what Pondsmith's RPG Cyberpunk, I mean, so a lot of the problems that people have are from when they integrate too much technology into their bodies. Yes, you know. Yeah, that, yeah. That, 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 that is bad part of it. Bad yes. things start happening. Yeah, blurring blurring the line between man and machine. You know, you you get a bunch of Darth Vaders running around, and what does that look like? What does that do Cyber for us? Who benefits from this? Right. Well, and, and I think I'll, I think many people will be more familiar with the recent like video game interpretation, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, of cyberpunk, um, and it's definitely for all its problems at launch. Uh, gameplay wise it certainly nailed the look um of that world oh yes uh between cyberpunk 2077 and uh deus ex establishing like oh man so good oh yeah there there was also um a game oh god i forget the name of it um it came out a year before rutger howard died um oh observer Observer. would that be the one you're thinking of yes Yes. observer 
which that one's very polish (laughs) yes and it looks it looks the closest to like i would like the blade runner style where there is no like the color pink doesn't really exist in blade runner but most of cyberpunk has has absorbed like the pink and teal sort of things that um it's known for like the very much bubblegum pop sort of all um, the neon and yeah, yeah cyberpunk has definitely absorbed the uh, 80s obsession with neon and bright colors mm-hmm. yeah i've always personally liked cyberpunk aesthetics more than steampunk but i'm pretty sure they're both equally dumb and both equally valid <laughs> <laughs> oh oh yeah it, it, it they're i think they're light years apart and you're looking for something different in both of them I don't understand why, like, and this is just me because I don't really think about it too often, but, like, why it's called, like, I get why cyberpunk is called cyberpunk. The punk element is there. The the idea, like, mostly when you're thinking about punk, you're thinking about rebellion. And um, the, the rebellion analogy I used earlier, I only just came up with it during this podcast because I never really understood where the punk element was, like. In, in steampunk. Right, like most of these protagonists in these steampunk adventures are like not wealthy, but like well to do, educated explorers, inventors. They don't seem to have jobs. <laughs> well, or, or their, their, is job their job is explorer right. or scientist or, you know. Yeah. They're, no, they're it's like, more like rogue scientist. <laughs> yeah, rogue scientist and maverick yeah, explorer and, and all of that sort of oh yeah and sometimes like if they're fighting against the establishment they're fighting against the establishment of the university or museum that they work for and that and no one else believes me but i'm going to show them and it's like i mean that's a good personal growth story but hardly um um rebelling against the establishment of like the wider world whereas right in cyberpunk specifically like cyberpunk tm um, the the, origi- <laughs> the original adventure that you get, like the, the, the plug-and-play sort of adventure that you play as in Cyberpunk 2020, um, is Johnny Silverhand, a cyborg rocker boy who's trying to... Um, uh, he's on, like, a crack A-team-style mission to assault, like, the big bad corpo mega tower in the city and blow it up with a nuke. And he's fighting... That's actually... Uh, they actually put that in the 2077 yes, game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For, then, uh, for anyone who is somehow unaware, uh, Johnny Silverhand is Keanu Reeves' character. Yeah. Um, and so it's like that... You, you do not get more cyberpunk than Rocker Boy tries to nuclear bomb the big bad Corpo Mega Tower. Yeah, you really... <laughs> don't don't really sue us, don't. Mike Pondsmith. We don't have any oh, money, right? Well, and like, no, he, he, no, he, he, he. I think he set out like he, um, like excelled at set, um, like he wanted to create something like that, and he excelled at it. Like he, it was an execution of like a solid idea. I get, I get the cyber, I get the punk, I get the story that you're trying to tell. Um, I, I, I was, but I don't know what's wrong with that. You don't know what's punk about uh, Steam, though. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you, what I'm, that, yeah. You, right. you definitely uh, you get the steam, but but not the punk. In the, I think the eventually punk. the punk part became just the sound people made um, <laughs> after they wanted a genre that sort of gets sort of encapsulated into like like a, a category. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's one thing to say something science fiction; it's another thing to say something is cyberpunk. Right. You know, like that places it firmly. 
inside of a certain environment, which I think the punk thing is just that just became a shorthand uh, for this is the box that this story takes place in. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really can, uh, to, I can definitely see that. If you really want to define it, um, like Wikipedia says, it's like retrofuturistic technology and aesthetics aspired by 19th century industrial steam-powered machinery. Um, it doesn't Thanks, say Wikipedia. any. No, it doesn't say anything about like punks. Right, punks. Yeah, and even then, like who, like yeah, that. But that's just me. Someone who's like a literary scholar could take me aside and say, "Here's why. Here's why it makes sense." Or, um, I yeah, but that's that's just that's the only holdup I have. I have nothing wrong with like steampunk as a genre. I think it's 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 nifty. I think you get to create truly unique ideas with um, the aesthetic blocks that are there. But um, yeah, and yeah, but, but I'm I'm gonna ramble. That's that's my thing. I think it. I like it more when it's not shallow. Which would probably be true of any genre. Yeah, um, that's that's <laughs> that's a but, pretty but pretty often, good statement. Often, 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 steampunk has more shallow waters than than some other things. Um, it, you know, it's it literally feels like bolt on a lot of the time, um, and I realize that that's not always the case because as I reach back through my memory, there are definitely some steampunk things that I've enjoyed. Um, uh, some novels and what have you, and some video games, and um, I think I think my problem was always like when it just felt superfluous. It, it's just what... you know like a Victorian area costume with some cogs bolted to it, right? Um, and you know what, man, I'm not going to tell anyone that that they can't enjoy that. I'm just going to say that, that it doesn't resonate for me uh, when that's the case. Um, and uh yeah. you know oh actually yeah it does say like on um tour public there's like a blog it's associated with tour publishing the punk in steampunk is a reference to cyberpunk because when okay. steampunk first formed it was comprised essentially of cyberpunk that is dystopian high-tech sci-fi stories set during the victorian period well there you go I, so it I all can't. stems from cyberpunk yeah. yeah cyberpunk is the og and uh steampunk is is an extension of that yeah right with a little think, bit, with a little uh, bit less punk to it. Whether or not you like the punk part of it, I think it it does a really good job of 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 telling you exactly what you're getting into usually with 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 a product. Yeah. Um, be that a book or a video game or a movie, but. Yeah, and in the, in terms of aesthetic as well, it'll tell you a lot. Like that's why I'm doing right. my Voton the way I'm doing them is, you know, there's going to be a lot of like white armor paneling and leather and brass on everything lots of that there has to be brass there has to be yeah brass is essential best metal uh i bought i bought some of <laughs> vallejo's brass paint uh expressly for this army you, you know you'll need some chrome if you ever do a cyberpunk uh themed anything wow uh, so uh, speaking so, of cyberpunk theme things, uh, going back to Martin's Dark Angels for a second, how much Chrome is there, Martin? Did you? <laughs> um, so the thing about Chrome, there's there there are a few Chrome paints you can buy that are like usually alcohol based, um, and they dry with a mirror finish. Uh, for those who have seen my uh, Lumineth in person, they'll notice like the edges of the shields and the spear tips glint with a mirror finish, and that is um. It's used actually to touch up damage on die-cast model cars and other similar kits. 
Um, okay. And because it dries to the mirror finish, you can't touch it with your fingers. It will smudge um, the, the finish, and you can't buff it. You just have to kind of reapply more paint, which is why I use, like, a silicone applicator, and you just, like, dab it on. Um, but really, there is no better finishing effect for something like that. Like, you've painted the whole weapon, and now I'm going to take just the little edges at the corner and really just punch them up. It's not something you can see in a photograph. It's, it's all meant for making the in-person visual experience that much more rich. Um, as for Chrome, um, I'm working on that. It's a little bit more, um, like, much more, like, Blade Runner vibes or, or, right. or like, manga sort of... Um, because uh, I'm not really changing anything about the Dark Angels themselves. I did not want the Dark Angels to be, like, um, too different from their aesthetic, because I actually quite like the Dark Angels Space Marines aesthetic. I've been making slight modifications, as in, like, I'm changing a robe color here and there. And, of course, like, I'm I'm kitbashing, like, Primaris, Firstborn and stuff to make, like... Uh, but these are these are all like aesthetics well within like the the approximate range of what you might see for Space Marines, however well executed sure. it might be. Uh, but I was fascinated as I started um, as I recently moved up to New York um, um, over the summer for for a new job. It's actually been a big life change. Um, as I started to work in the city, I was getting this idea, um, and I had been having fun with Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. Uh, but there is a lot of very cyberpunk elements, I think, about New York City in that you'll have um, this very um, steampunk era uh, building, Grand Central Station, built almost 100 years ago. And Lots for, of Art Deco. Uh, yeah, Art Deco. And like in these caverns built for people just of another time, you'll have like an Apple store and stuff like that. And um, a lot of these Art Deco buildings in Midtown, which are still there and nestled in between corpo structures and and all of like what some people might call lifeless buildings. Um, but even especially the height of uh, one of the other elements of cyberpunk is that income, like highlighting income inequality and disparity between uh, the people at the top and the people at the very bottom. Um, and it's unfortunate right. that I'm about to talk about something in real life, but it's, it's on the news and stuff. Um, there is a street in Manhattan. Um, it's called West 57th Street. It's um, more commonly known as Billionaire's Row. Ah, it's, yes. It's called Billionaire's Row because it's full of super tall skyscrapers. Super tall meaning, I believe, it's like the square footage. It's like it's four times as tall as it is wide per square foot or something like that. I don't have the exact terminology on hand, but there are all of these... Lo there are, they're not all of them, but there's like seven or eight of these buildings along 57th Street, which are luxury condos. And by that, I mean like the top of one of them believes they're worth $168 million. But they have, and, but the buildings across all of them have like a 2%. Like they're all like occupancy. They're all, yeah, occupancy, not not like a vacancy, but yeah, occupancy. Like they're there. People who own those, those properties um, are there maybe once or twice a year. And their palace is in the sky. And they're looking over um, a New York City, which is, um, like, struggling under its own weight. Like, the train system, which used to be one of the most advanced in the Western Hemisphere, um, serves hundreds of thousands of people every day. Um, uh, survives off of a 110-year-old a concrete tunnel, which... Uh, Hurricane Sandy effectively like obliterated, and it's a meat grinder of cash, just keeping everything working. And it's a shame this is this is all entirely true and something I live with every day. And just thought, just this giving me idea. It's like what I want to get back into Space Marines, but I don't want to do 
Um, I want to do something much more urban, much more um, uh, modern, and not just like um, setting it in like I, I, like a, a version of New York City with all of my bases. I wanted to try something new. And it's like, how about like cyberpunk? That's a little adjacent. It's not quite like it's actually quite um, when you take something like the Dark Angels, which is as like science fantasy as you can get with the space marines where they are actual knights in space they have all of this emo gear with like the incense burners and like the robes over their stormtrooper armor it is quite a campy look if you dissect it um it's well executed but that doesn't make it any less silly when you look at it objectively um and yeah putting, well your and, bases are really cyberpunk that's what i'm yeah i think you yeah, shared yeah, a yeah, picture I'm, of them um, yeah, and they're going to get more. Like I've been, um, uh, I I haven't posted too much in the Goobertown Discord. Um, I'm actually working on them this weekend. Now that I'm not doing just stuff on 32 mil bases, like 40s and larger. Oh sure, um, yeah. Um, for those in the audience who might have heard of a manga called Battle Angel Alita, um, which they they made into a movie a few years ago, which it was it was all right, but like it's uh, I'm trying to bring up. Um, each cover of the original manga series from the 90s, every single one of the covers um, has um, the main character, Alita, um, in a Blade... In a, not a scene from Blade Runner, but like a set piece. Like there's um, like one of the streets and like all, all of the, the, the props, like the lights and the computers and the phone booths and the, um, the bicycle lanes. Those are like... That's a sequence from Blade Runner that she's standing in. And so um, they provide a lot of, like, truly unique visual representations of this, um, um, uh, something why I brought up the Observer versus something like Cyberpunk 2077, which is a little, a lot more sunny in California. Um, It's like, there's just all of this trash and clutter built on top of each other. So there's a combination of, like, scrap and computer monitors and, like, just old decaying plastic and a lot of um uh i don't want to say it's it's a fetish but definitely a fascination with the human body getting back to the transhumanism like in blade runner 2049 if for people who've seen blade runner 2049 how many statues or holograms of the human body are in that movie and once you think about it they're like everywhere just these giant not horror, but like quite garish statues, just showing off like the human body, musculature, or um, how, how great the human form is. Well, well Deus Ex has uh, Human Revolution yeah. specifically has that like boss room at the end that is just a bunch of anatomical statues. Yes, stuff like that is 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 a good example, um, and so I'll be able to incorporate more of that little bit by bit. And um, I do have a long, ambitious project. Like, I actually put together, like, a not a proposal, but, like, an outline of what it's going to look like. And this is going to be ultimately for um, the Nova Open next year. Um, I oh, wholly nice. Rec- I wholly recommend people attend the Nova Open, and not just because, like, I rep them because I volunteer there. But, like, it is very much a wholesome convention. It's, like, the perfect size for people. If, if they've never been to a convention before... Um, like as if they've gotten into the hobby, like maybe over COVID or something, and they're not really sure like what a wargaming convention's like. Um, and a, if they think about Adepticon, Adepticon can get like very large and overwhelming for people. Gen Con, especially with how claustrophobic it is. Nova is, I think, the right size. They have the right amount of activities. They have lots of seminars. 
painting contests. It's mellow. Um, they are moving to a new venue for the first time since the, like the convention's like 13 years old. So it's like it's always been at one hotel. Now it's going to be at a new one. But like um, this is something that I thought it's like I want to try something new that's different. It's not a GT. It's going to be the 40k narrative, um, and I will be building something uh, without like just getting bogged down in details. Uh, the one thing I've always struggled with is like getting a truly professional finish. Like this was created by a studio and not necessarily by one artist. And yes, this is stuff that only people who are like chasing awards might be worried about, but I really want to create something special and it requires a lot of tools I've never used before, but the only way to use them is to learn. Uh, so uh, I'm going to have to learn about LEDs. going to have to learn about really just Ooh. like pre precision cutting of foam core um, like proper finishes of paint, like making something look like metal or concrete in like large homemade scenery. Um, uh, and if I want to enter this in Armies on Parade, I can't just like 3D print like brutalist uh, buildings like from Blade Runner. I have to figure out how to scratch build them and in combination with like games workshop scenery elements put together. Well, uh, if yeah. if you want any if you want any tips on building scenery, uh, I feel like that is something that you could actually hit me up for. I, I don't hit me up for I, any I, painting I, tips. Your painting is no. far superior to my own, but I did <laughs> see in your library the forty k the forty k terrain video. I haven't watched the whole thing yet, but I did see that. So yeah, I'll be I'll I'll, I'll let you. I know. mean, it's pretty exciting though. When you think about it, when you you have to come up with new tools or learn new tools or learn learn new techniques, that's always fun yeah. for me, because I feel like I'm stretching, and that just adds more things that I can do yeah. on even in even more distant projects. Um, if I if I just may add, because I don't uh, before I talk too long about this, um, I uh, the main challenge is to go crazy and like get get people's minds like uh, people that are looking at these models it's like they see the cyberpunk basing with like the pink and purple and green lights with like all of the props and like the advertisements but i don't want um uh 40k is a lot more like gothic dune style science fantasy cyberpunk is ultimately like much more rooted in the consumerist hard sci-fi uh, visions of our near future. Yeah, so those like... two things don't really mix. And the idea is to have these two design families meet in a way which is an interesting clash without changing too much of one or the other. And if I'm not going to make the Dark Angels like look like, you know, like they're in a cyberpunk game then I can't have the... Uh, then I'm going to have to change a little bit of the cyberpunk elements to make it feel like this is a world in 40k which has become more cyberpunk uh, without well, losing know, to... Yeah. I, I'm reminded that they've, the Black Library has recently had a few novels um, mm -hmm. that, like in the Warhammer Crime or something yeah. like that. Yeah, they, they, uh, they are uh, um, from what I've seen and like there's also the, um, the Interrogator show it tries to do that noir detective style stuff. A little stuff, bit, yeah, yeah. But it's very much in the um, the world of 40K. It doesn't really have as many of those. Like It's much more like Necromunda. Necromunda is yeah, a good example. I, I was like, about to mention yeah. Necromunda as uh, 
Like, if you really want a kind of marriage of the cyberpunk elements and the 40k elements, I think the perfect encapsulation of that is probably the Escher gang from Necromunda. Yeah. Well, all the gangs, I, I, did, I did research this. It's like, oh, can I just, like, borrow stuff from Necromunda and try and use that as my, as my um, design elements? And, like, it, the more you read into it, the more 40k it is, because all of the gangs are, like, royal houses, the corpo element there are no corpos like it's all like the imperium so you have gunslingers like in victorian outfits and like with cybernetics it gets very um uh like regency type stuff rather than you know the 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 corpos in in cybernetic or i'm sorry cyberpunk stories tend to have like more soviet like brutalist um aesthetics rather than like what you will get in 40k um sure yeah so and like but you'll still have like as as you said like the gangs um all of the new stuff which is like in the ash waste the mad max elements are definitely like cyberpunk if you took three things would be blade runner um like harley quinn sort of stuff and um mad max are like right. the three main um, bodies of um, art history, which end up in our modern conception of cyberpunk. Yeah, because and... the the Mad Max Ashways type stuff, like, is is very much uh, where the nomads in twenty seventy seven yeah. are coming from. Uh, the the sort of like outside of the big cities is just this desert wasteland of gangs in souped up yeah. cars with blades on them oh yeah yeah just Listen, ju- junk trucks if you can't have hubcaps with giant swords on them i don't even know why you have hubcaps yeah you're you're uh i i wanted to focus more like on the corpo elements like um, yeah uh and not, not not too much because ultimately like it, if you folk if you focus too much on one aesthetic within the family that is the cyberpunk design, you're going to lose out on that cult, that that overarching umbrella which makes it special. Like this, the cyberpunk, you can't forget the punk element, or you right, can't forget the cyber. Oh, yeah, with your um, dark angels too, you're sort of having to balance. Like these things still need to feel like they're in the, the 40k universe, right? Right. Yeah, there's um, there's probably some interesting design space there where you you take those corpo things and kind of like just inject the Imperium into that, and so the Dark Angels yes. coming in are like the agents of the Imperium. They are the corpos, and they're uh, walking want, through these these streets. I'm, and... gr- I'm grinning. I'm grinning from ear to ear right now because you're hitting <laughs> on certain things. Which again, I I don't want to spoil it because it's like one. This is a podcast. I don't have the visual aids to show you the stuff where it's like, oh, look at the advertisements I've made, which right. do exactly that. But also, it's like um, a lot of this is work in progress, and I'd rather like wait until like there's a finished element. But yet, the, when um, things may change over yeah. time. Yeah, right. Very very, very much, much looking forward to uh, to seeing your finished army, Martin and. And, uh, if, there's going to be more. Of, uh, uh, I will say that there's going to be a little bit more than just an army, as in like the the army itself, the gaming army, and their display are not going to be the only components of the fi- of this finished project. Um, is is the best I can encapsulate it. Oh, with. okay, like, okay, like, very very cool, very cool. I'm yeah. I have some ideas, like just in my own mind, of where that might. And I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna talk about them too much because yeah, yeah. maybe you know, you know, that's not the direction you're gonna go. But like, 
I can definitely see some uh, some of the ways that you could go with with kind of incorporating other elements into more than just your miniatures and the display board on which they stand. And I think I think that's pretty cool. I'm I'm getting a mental image here, and I think it's pretty cool. So hopefully, oh yeah, hopefully but we'll... it's 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 also because um, uh, because like the, there will be a professional presentation, and it's like people are going to be like, what is this? And so there will be a little bit of a, a, a placard, like an eleven by fourteen sort of thing. Like here's like a brief description of what I've built for people who are like just onlookers. Um, but like the key thing that I'm trying to hammer home is that the Dark Angels are very much disruptors. They are muscling in and trying to execute their own agenda. Um, they are not necessarily like they might be operating um, as heroes. They are putting an end to the craziness which caused the cyberpunk world. But they're very much there for their own reasons. Where the uh, the Iron Hands might be more might have been more technologically equipped to handle. Um, uh, like, I don't know, hackers or, or something like that, or the Ultramarines might have walked in like Captain Picard um, and tried to, like, you know, like, make peace and, like, go to the treaty table and, like, have all of these disparate factions. It's like, we, we all want different things, but we can get there without um, lots of urban infighting and gang warfare and stuff like that. Uh, the Dark Angels are, are the Emperor's executioners. They are, they are there. They're going to do their own thing. Yeah, I think I think that it is very appropriate to cyberpunk to have all of this stuff going on and the Imperium's response is to send in a bunch of knights to step on it and hit it with a sword. Mm-hmm. Well, they're always they're ultimately chasing the fallen. And if they right. don't have um they can't just blow up the planet because then the dark angels are like, well, if we know there are fallen on the planet, um if we blow them up, then they're they're just gone forever and we can't get any more information out of them. We don't have enough people with us to, like, you know, take over the planet. So we have to fight, you know, the old-fashioned way. And that's the idea of, like, what the gaming army is for. Um, yeah, I, I could get lost in the weeds on all of these ideas. I'm trying to incorporate. <laughs> well, yeah. we'll have to we'll uh-huh. have to pick your brain about it in the future when you've moved yeah, on. Yeah, I would say, I would say uh, maybe, like, in January and then again, like, next summer when it's done. Um, nice. Because I, yeah. I do have like a, a like a, like not like halfway mark, but more like I I now have enough here. milestones. Yeah, yeah. Like I I have like a a six inch by eight inch sort of mini display, which is going to be like a proof of concept for the display board, which uses all of the colors and like design elements. It will serve enough for like a diorama um, nice. to show off, like the yeah the proof of concept of what I'm going we're going to do going forward, not just mini. All right. Well, we'll we'll definitely be looking forward to seeing that once it's done. And but I think we are finished for now, unless anyone else has anything more to say. No. And that's our show. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening. If you want to experience more of our collective genius, we can be found around the internet. Martin, uh, where can people go to see your work, to see these dark angels that you've been working on that we've spent so much time talking about, that sort of thing? Where can we find you? Yeah, I am uh, fully available most days of the week on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can search my full name, Martin Orlando, and then just type miniatures into Google. Um, it's surprising that people can do that now and find my artwork. But um, on Twitter, my username is uh, CV, like you know, British version of a resume, underscore consigliere. Okay. And Instagram Unders, uh, there's a whole reference in there, which is no longer relevant, but I'm not changing my Twitter name ever. That's just what it's going to be, period. Um, and uh, my Instagram is one word, uh, all lowercase, the wandering prince. Okay. 
I'll have to follow you on there. Okay, yes. I will definitely have to drop you a follow as well myself. Jeremy, where can people go to see your hobby work? Um, I am on ghostbear underscore paints on Instagram. Uh, and uh, ho- uh, hopefully I'm showing a progression of my improvement over time, uh, w- which I've noticed. So hopefully at least one other person has noticed. <laughs> doing it you're doing a good job i think so and uh, i of course am on youtube at youtube.com slash realm of the lich king that's lich spelled l-i-c-h-e and also on instagram at destro the lich king with lich spelled the same way i haven't posted anything on there for a little while but i do hope to get back to posting more soon this has been grognard's yell at cloud and until next time just remember we're perfect it's the children who are wrong the street lights and the ravers and my trails of misbehavior lost in liquid nights and whirling disco lights. The birds.